In the end, we could find no way to discover what the machines knew, what they understood. The void between our simple meat and their unfathomable minds dwarfed the tiny gaps between us. In their dark, unreadable eyes, we saw our own emptiness reflected back. In recognizing that emptiness, we came to embrace the void. void quite calming actually it's like this time the xanax took me your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it it's like i'm in a black void trying to reach the news story this concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic what is real how do you define real if you're talking about what you can feel what you can smell you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 104 of Embrace the Void, where we are not afraid to get into the weeds on why everything is broke. This week, I sit down with a friend of a friend of the show uh, who studies various kinds of machine learning. We try to work through some of the basics of AI, which in itself proves to be a bit of a tricky task. Um, But hopefully, the robots will let you enjoy. So here we go. My guest this week is Michael Cogswell, a grad student at Georgia Tech, where he studies deep learning and neural nets, especially as they apply to computer vision. Michael, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on and taking the time. Um, I really appreciate this. As uh, someone who tries to do AI ethics, I am... sort of constantly struggling with all of the information that there is to learn about just the AI part of that equation. So mm-hmm. I really appreciate you coming on today to give us a, a kind of a primer, I think, into a lot of really important information in the world of uh, AI yeah. Uh, learning, right? Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. No, absolutely. So maybe we can start uh, by just getting a few definitions is everything that we're going to talk about today a kind of machine learning? Or how would you sort of distinguish machine learning from non-machine learning? I th- not everything we're going to talk about is machine learning, um, in as much as I can anticipate the conversation. Right. Um, so I, I think especially a, a lot of more classical AI mm-hmm. Um doesn't necessarily do any learning um, because, uh, well, maybe I should back up. <laughs> maybe, maybe it would be better to first define machine learning. Um, sure, yeah. Machine learning is, um, I guess it's a, a way of writing programs that has a little bit of a different interface than uh, normal computer programs that you might write. So in a normal computer program, you have um, you have um, database of uh, flights, and 
you know, you have some search criteria and uh, you enter the search criteria and um, you, you write a program that goes and searches through the database and returns you a list of flights that gives you a search criteria. In machine learning, um, I don't know if that's the best example, uh, but in machine learning, the interface is different. So the input is a data set of examples of behavior that you want um, your program to perform. And your output is a program that performs that behavior. So it so, essentially builds the the thing that you are, that, that will do the, the goals that you are looking to have accomplished? Right. So the example that I want to start with is image classification. Mm -hmm. So uh, say you have a bunch of pictures of cats and a bunch of pictures of dogs. And it's... I do have a bunch of pictures of dogs. That's accurate. Excellent. <laughs> um, and uh, you need more pictures of cats then. Mm, debatable, but we can we can set it aside for the sake of argument. Maybe, maybe override the pictures of cats. <laughs> um, so it, it's hard to write a program that uh, tells the differences between uh, dogs and cats uh, because um, they there are a lot of ways um, which like different dogs can look really similar to some cats, but then uh, there, are, there are also like dogs that look very different. Like a Great Dane looks very different than a poodle or like a, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a tiny little uh, corgi or something. Um, so a, a, lot, a lot of things that count as dogs look different and a lot of things that count as dogs look like cats is what you're saying? Yeah, so this is, the, this is a hard problem. Um, this is this is a hard sort of uh, perceptual problem, and so if uh, and, and people what, what people did for a while is um, you you try to write down um, algorithms that um, tell the difference. So you you want to like I don't know maybe cats have pointier ears than dogs, and um, maybe they have longer tail to body ratio or. Um, something like that. So you try to write, um, you, you try to go in and write some code that captures those features that you just came up with um, and says whether something's a dog or a cat. But it turns out that's really hard. Um, so a better way to do it is um, using this machine learning interface where um, you have these examples of dogs and cats and um, the machine learning algorithm, you, you train the, you train your model to tell whether something's a cat or a dog. And so traditional machine learning did this by uh, starting at a sort, sort of a similar point um, to that sort of completely hand-designed algorithm where you still have um, experts come in and like design um, programs that extract features from images. Like maybe you have... Um, you look for like two lines that intersect like pointy ears, or maybe you look like look for uh -huh. like blobs. And so you have a bunch of by by implementing all of these um, feature extractors, you have a bunch of numbers that represent your images, and you feed this to a simple classifier, um, which is sort of shallow and not very intelligent, but um, is is our first sort of machine learning algorithm, mm -hmm. and. Um, so you adjust, uh, th this classifier has a couple parameters, and so um, every time you feed the classifier a dog, 
you adjust its parameters so that it's more likely to say dog, and every time you feed it a cat, you adjust its parameters so it's more likely to say cat. So that's traditional machine learning. You would actively be involved in tweaking its parameters so that it got more right answers? Um, so the, uh, the algorithms that you design are the algorithms that do that parameter tweaking. I see. So the, the parameter tweaking is automatic. Mm -hmm. um, so you would just keep feeding it, it, it. You know, this thing is a cat. You'd code it as a cat. You'd feed it in. And if it, it, would, it would keep tweaking its, its machinery until it was really good at getting the right answer, basically. Yeah, and like you might have different machine learning, like some, you might have a bunch of different approaches and the different approaches might be um, different ways of um, parameterizing that classifier um, and different ways of tweaking the parameters. Um, so how do these ideas relate to the concepts deep learning and neural nets, just so that people can understand where these different right. terms fit together? Yeah, so, so the next thing that you do... Um, is you take these hand design features where I was looking for like pointy ears or um, you know, blobs or whatever in images, um, and you replace them with um, essentially more um, machine learning. So instead of hand designing them, you have some layers that figure out what these features should be. So you have something that isn't so different from that classifier you had that. Um, outputs a number that gets fed into that original classifier you have. So now you have more than one layer. And, and I assume that once you have multiple layers, problems emerge because they can get into weird loops? Or is that maybe mm -hmm. a problem we should we should note for me potentially for later? Yeah, I, I don't know what you mean by weird loops, but um, perhaps or, in some interpretations of that, yes. I guess in the sense that like they can get into... That like you could have, I mean, as you're adding more moving parts, right? You're creating more possibility that there could be like weird feedbacks that build up. But maybe I'm getting a little ahead on things here. Um, so in this, uh, so we're starting to build a neural network here. Mm -hmm. um, in in some neural networks, um, you, you can have feedback, but we're not there yet. We're okay. in um, what people call feed-forward neural networks so far. So there isn't any, um, so right now um, we've just got, instead of, uh, I, I had these two modules before. I had a module that extracts features from images that I mm -hmm. hand designed and I had a classifier module. And now I still have those same two modules except for I've replaced the first module with something slightly different and something less manual. I see. So, uh, so there isn't feedback. You've got two different. It, it's still it's still two different modules, um, one feeding into the other. So there, and each of those is uh, a layer in your neural network. And mm -hmm. so, for when we, when we get to deep neural networks, um, we add more of those layers. Um, so, especially if if you want a successful image classifier that can do a good job on um, realistic images of dogs and cats. Uh, you want an image classifier that has, um, I, so, I mean, they, they have lots of different layers, but certainly something closer to 10 uh, at least. Um, but some of them even go up to like a thousand maybe. So a, a, a deep learning system is, a, is just a, a lot of layers of these kind of things put together into a neural network. 
Yeah. Is that how you put uh, it together? Exactly. Um, and each of those layers, and crucially, each of those layers has, um, has more parameters. Um, so like we were adjusting parameters on the classifier before and when we were doing traditional machine learning. Mm-hmm. And um, now we're adjusting the parameters and not just the classifier um, at the top of the neural network, but uh, we're also adjusting uh, parameters for all of these intermediate layers. And so every, so every time we see a cat or we see a dog, we adjust the classifier parameters. And then we also have some way of telling um, how, how to adjust the uh, parameters of all these extra layers that we've added so that they make it more likely that uh, the whole thing is going to say cat for cats and dog for dogs. Okay, so it just allows it to just improve itself in terms of reliable in terms of getting the right answers consistently. The more of these layers that you can add in, yeah. So there's I th- roughly yes. Okay. Certainly for um, there, there's a point at which um, I'm trying. The answer to that question is yes and no, and and I'm trying to figure out how <laughs> much to say about it at this point. <laughs> That's good. No, I, I get that a lot with questions that I ask. So maybe you can answer this broadly speaking, right? How good have we gotten with this sort of pattern recognition level systems? Uh, and are there limitations on how good you feel like these systems may be able to get? Hmm. So the cool thing is that since uh, about 2012, um, and really research has been building up to this um, for longer than that, but there is sort of, um, generally people think of 2012 as a breakthrough year. Um, we got pretty good at doing this um, image classification thing. And it turns out that that was also more broadly useful for computer vision tasks. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, image classification like that, um, Depending on how you measure it, like, so image classification, this, this uh, cat-dog thing that I'm talking about, um, where you have a fixed set of classes and uh, you have images of those classes and you just have to put each image into a bucket. Mm-hmm. Um, this, so this is a fairly constrained thing, but we're about as good as humans and maybe even better than humans at that constrained problem oh really so we're at the they're at the point now where they can correctly identify a cat versus a dog about as well as you know a human staring at an image yeah and even so the the popular even even more than that like the popular data set um is image dead and like image for this particular task um and image so ImageNet has like i think just as a quirk of the data set, it has like three different, 300 different types of dogs in it. So it can probably tell dog breeds better than you can. Uh huh. Unless you're really familiar with dog breeds. But that, this is because, um, and, and so maybe this starts to get into some of the problems with deep learning. Mm-hmm. Um, this is because uh, when you, in, in order to get this performance, you need data sets that have. You need data sets like image, where they have um, 
a lot of images. So this, I think the, the basic ImageNet classification challenge has um, 1.2 million images or something like that for uh-huh. a thousand different classes. So basically, like, if you start to try to get into, like, identifying something really rare that there aren't a lot of images for, it becomes incredibly hard to program this properly. Yeah, exactly. Like, you, you get this... Um, you get this new thing, like, uh, I, don't, I don't know, maybe you want to uh, classify flowers. Now you need to collect a big data set with a bunch of flowers in it. And you need more, you don't even just need the pictures of the flowers. In order to do it this way, you, you need to um, label the flowers, too. So that, that takes even more effort. Right, and it seems like a lot depends on, you know, a, a lot hinges on how much you can energy you can put into that data set, how how well you're able to correctly label the data in that data set, things like that, right? And also, yeah, like, yeah. questions of what are you trying to get it to identify, right? It's one thing to get it to identify cats and dogs, but can you get it to identify sort of more complex or more abstract categories effectively? Right, um, like it, yeah. In a, in a sense of like, could you just to give a really hard example? Right, obviously this is going to be hard even for humans, but like, you know, building a um some sort of neural net that identifies beautiful things, right? Even if you could put a ton of examples of things that people would identify as beautiful into that system, would it, do you think that you you get the results of a system that could correctly sort of anticipate things that humans would find beautiful? I think it would be, I, I, my basic answer is no, um, mm-hmm. but uh, I'd be interested to see, like you said, it, it might be hard for humans. So mm-hmm. if this is something that is hard for humans, you might be able to get human performance, um, not because, because, but it would be because the network's able to pick up on the statistics of sort of what you've defined in your data set and it doesn't really have an understanding of beauty that's similar to any of the humans understanding of beauty okay so so what are some of the other things i think you mentioned besides um you said that like uh when we were chatting before the show a bit that like dl is particularly good at uh this these perception kinds of problems but has a lot more difficulty with other kinds of problems why is that yeah, so uh, it, it does. Um, it's it's a tool that. Um, I mean, so I guess I should come up with a, a problem that it's uh, not good at, which I guess what I have written here is alpha zero. Um, yeah, you you mentioned that like other things that we often think of. It seems to me that people often think of as like deep learning or are actually combinations of deep learning and reinforcement yeah. learning. Uh, okay, oh. so. Um, yeah, so maybe I'll say this. Um, so deep learning is a, a tool that's good for these perception problems, like you were saying. And so uh, if you actually, l- let me say another thing first. Sure. So I, I, I sort of like this thought of thought experiment where um, you take the, there's sort of this extreme where you have um, infinite data and infinite compute. Okay. Where you can make your neural network as big as you want it to be. And uh, you can see as many examples of whatever it is you want to see examples of. 
So I'm not just seeing examples of image classification, but maybe I, and my outputs aren't just like image classes, but maybe my neural network um, sort of has uh, visual input and audio input and you know touch input or whatever, and maybe it also like controls the movements of some robot body or it, um, mm -hmm. you know. This is a, this a sort of idealized Turing Turing machine kind of hypothetical. Um, I, I I'm just imagining an interface where um, you you can essentially you, the space of things that the model can do is sort of the space of things that you might want a uh, human to do. Um, and it so in this space of things, like you could imagine considering all of the possible. Uh, situations that a human or, or whatever sort of agent you're interested in might run into. Um, and if you had a data set with all of those possible situations and you had enough compute power, um, you could probably train like this completely laughably impractical uh, deep neural network to do all of those things. Right, if it wasn't constrained by limitations of... Uh, resources or something, then it would have no reason to try to be more efficient in its processes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And mm -hmm. um, so, why but, do you like so, this particular hypothetical? What do you feel like sort of falls out of it? Um, I, so I, one thing is that um, I think uh, as neural networks have sort of um, come and gone over the years in AI. Um, this has been uh, people, people, various proponents of neural networks, um, and, and this may be straw manning them a little bit, um, but they, they've been interested in, in this idea where um, in, instead of having um, other pieces of an AI system, um, you just have a big neural network, and eventually um, it, you, you can figure out um, how to do everything with it. Um, but it, it's not at all practical um, because it, it takes too many resources. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly why I like it. Um, okay, so what does this okay. tell us, though, about, like, the realities, then, of of deep learning and neural networks, right? Obviously, that in the back in the real world, you have, you know, constraints on your resources. So... Where do you, where do you feel like this ties in with the sort of the usage of um, deep learning and and maybe bringing back to the reinforcement learning stuff and how those are different? Yeah, so uh, in the real world, you you have to be um, much more practical. Um, so I guess an example of how deep learning um, is used to do a task that sort of involves perception along with other things is uh, AlphaZero that um, DeepMind developed in the past few years. Mm -hmm. So that's a program that um, surpassed human-level performance on um, Go and chess and I think Shogi. And Dota two, I believe. Well, that, Do that that's Dota a movie. that's a different. Uh, is that a, a different one? 
that I think that's a that's a follow up, but uh, it's in it's in the same vein of work. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. All these AIs appear, to, as far as I understand, to get better by playing against themselves without really understanding the rules of the game in some way. Is that accurate? Yeah. Um, in, in yeah, I, I think in some sense. Um, so there are there are a couple of different parts to these things um, that. Um, is why I wanted to use this to illustrate this point. So um, one part is this sort of tree search thing where um, you have some model of, uh, let's say, Go. So if uh, I, I know how to simulate the game of Go, if I take this action, then I know what the next state is, and uh, I can write some simulation that sort of rolls that out um, in the AI agent's mind. So in, in that sense, it does know what the rules of Go are. are. Okay. So it'll, it'll use this sort of simulation to um, figure out what move to do next um you know like you if, if you play mm -hmm. chess you, you sort of imagine what will happen if i move here what will happen if i move here mm -hmm. so are but, these programs doing that you're saying yeah so they do that um and they do they also use so that's not deep learning right that doesn't okay. use neural networks but um just sort of um search by itself but because what neural networks are used for is the search tree um, for games like Go is um, way too large, essentially. Mm -hmm. So it's computationally impractical to sort of brute force roll out all of these things. So you'll use uh, neural networks as uh, heuristics, um, essentially. Well, uh, somewhat heuristics. I mean, so they're using... They're also using reinforcement learning, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. And so they say, uh, is, this a, is this going to be a good move or not at each stage in the search? So you take a step, and um, there, are a bunch of, there are a bunch of moves you could make next after that step. And um, you'll use... Uh, these neural networks, or I think in Alpha Zero's case, it's just one neural network um, that uh, allows you to say, uh, well, you know, out of the large number of options that I have, this is really the only one that makes sense. So mm -hmm. I'm only going to go with that one. And that prunes out, like, if you had 20 options, um, now your search tree is much smaller because you only chose one and you left 19 by the wayside. But then you get somewhere down the tree, like uh, maybe the next move, uh, you, you, there was still only one good option. But the move after that, there were, um, you used this neural network to evaluate it. And uh, it said, well, there are two good options you can do here. Um, so uh, expand the tree in, in this way. Um, and I uh -huh. think that's. And so is the idea that you have to integrate these different kinds of uh, technology, the reinforcement learning, the 
the neural nets in such a way and the trees themselves you were describing that the decision trees that like you, you have to have all of these pieces sort of working together and they, they, they follow slightly different structures, but they come together to create these systems that can produce human level cognition. It seems like exactly. Yeah. So, so there are, there are different components that are interacting and only one of them is a deep neural network. I see. Um, so, so you've got you've got this search, which isn't a deep neural network. You've got reinforcement learning, um, which is how you train these neural networks, and then you've got the neural networks themselves. Do you? Would there be reason to use things like reinforcement learning to shape the trees as well? Would you like, given more time, apply more kinds of machine learning at more levels of at all the different levels of this process? Is that um, a coherent question? I I don't know. Um, sort of like at yeah. the beginning you were saying, you know, you had those two modules, one that you had built yourself and one that was, um, that it, it had, uh, you'd had, you know, it um, came about through deep learning. And then you went back and created another deep learning network that was doing the other process as well. It sounded like, if I'm getting that right. Yeah. Uh, so, like, so you, are you talking about the different layers that I had? Yeah. Um, sorry, the two layers, right? So, yeah, like, that, that, um, yeah, I see. Um, yeah. So, I, I guess uh, these these neural networks also have uh, a bunch of layers in, in the same way that the other ones did. Mm -hmm. So they also decompose into a number of components um, that are all machine learning components. I don't know if that really answers your question, though. I'm just sort of curious about how much, like, I think you had mentioned in one of our email exchanges that you were interested in, in like, Nick Bostrom's superintelligence thesis, for example, and, mm -hmm. like, potential limitations on the scalability of intelligence. And yeah. I'm just wondering if that's in the neighborhood of this in terms of, like, the degree to which you can scale optimizing the different parts of these systems that we often think of as just one homogenous getting really smart, super intelligent system. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> Sorry. I guess I'm just trying to figure out about like where, what the implications are for this, right? I'm trying for, especially for folks who aren't as familiar with the technical side of it for them to understand, like, especially what kinds of misconceptions they may be having about this kind of technology that could be leading people to sort of misinterpret the likely implications for it. So maybe in a second here, we can talk some about, um, some of the limit, the other limitations that you mentioned in terms of things like interpretability and transparency, how that relates to this. Um, so maybe I think one thing I could do here is I could go into um, I could go into some more examples that talk about. So I was I was, I was also thinking of getting into VQA some. Okay, why don't you explain VQA some? What is VQA? Yeah, and so I, I'm hoping that I'm hoping that you'll edit some of this out because I'm not. Uh... Yeah, we'll we'll trim it down some. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so uh, VQA is visual question answering. Okay. So you start with uh, an image, like uh, let's say it has a fire hydrant in it, mm -hmm. and uh, you can ask. You have a system uh, that you ask questions, uh, where you ask questions about this image. So, 
you can ask, uh, is there a fire hydrant in the image? Hopefully it says yes. Um, is there a street in the image? Uh, if the fire hydrant's next to the street, hopefully it says yes. You can ask, um, what color is the fire hydrant? And hopefully, uh, maybe the fire hydrant's red. And if it is, hopefully it says red. But oh, I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the sorts of problems that's typical of these models is that um, they'll say red even if the fire hydrant isn't red necessarily. Okay, why? Because uh, when you trained it, all of the examples that you gave it had fire hydrants, which are almost always red. Mm-hmm. So statistically, uh, it's sort of overfit to this pattern, um, and it hasn't. Uh, properly uh, disentangled um, maybe color from the actual feature of the thing. Uh-huh. It always associates red with fire hydrant. So if it sees fire hydrant, it's really overcome. It's really hard for it to overcome this prior where it's where almost all of the fire hydrants it's seen are red because at training time, it's been rewarded for calling fire hydrants red. Right, that makes sense. It's optimized in that way. It's it's if we were talking about the limitations that we were discussing earlier, you wouldn't waste limited energy confirming something that 99.9% of the time is the case. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. So with these particular situations, right, what what are the So is this why, for example, when I have to try to sign into something, I sometimes have to play the game of how many of these pictures have fire hydrants in them because that's particularly hard for AIs to do. And that's why it's one of the things that we test humans with now. Yeah, um, I, I suppose so. Yeah. <laughs> and and so there are, there are also other problems. Um, so it, it's not just these sorts of language priors, but it's also uh, if you have this, VQA model, uh, you can you might have a picture of a car and you can ask, is this car a Tesla? And uh, so another problem that you run into is in order to answer that correctly, it has to have background knowledge about what Teslas are. And mm-hmm. so the, the way that we've trained these models is just with a bunch of general examples from the world or, you know, w- whatever examples we've been able to come up with. And so if those examples had enough e- pictures of Teslas and asked about what the brand of the car was, then it might be able to answer what a Tesla was, but it can't go to the internet and say, you know, what, what does the logo of a Tesla look like? And do I see the logo of a Tesla in this picture? So, so we're not, we're not at a point where the technology can train itself on new questions. Is that what you're sort of saying? Yeah. Like it, it's limited to the data that you have available. Um, even mm-hmm. and, and like I, it, there are there are certainly research projects that are interested in more open ended um, applications where uh, mm-hmm. you can do this sort of thing. But where uh, if the program doesn't know the answer, it can teach it can figure out how to get the data that it needs to teach itself. Yeah, like maybe there will be an some external database um, where you you, you have. Um, knowledge like this uh, represented in some maybe tabular format or something. Uh-huh. Um, like you just have, uh, I guess in, in this example, it would be like a, a table of cars and logos. Um, right. But 
so far, and so hopefully it could go to that database and look up the logo and get it and then sort of match it with what it sees in the image. But, Do you think, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Uh, but all of the all of uh, the things that do that sort of thing, um, roughly, are fairly toy and not not um, practical. So op open ended and an open ended understanding of the world is still um, beyond the reach of these models. Yeah, that was just what I was going to ask. Was like, are are we still a far ways off from the system being able to use this kind of method to? generalize its own intelligence in a broad way or are we still sort of stuck with very narrow systems for the time being yeah we're we're definitely stuck um in narrow systems for the time being um mm -hmm. so that's that's been sort of a classical problem of ai um you divide you can build ai to do this really complex task but it only does this one really complex task I feel yeah, like it's still a problem with deep learning. Right. I feel like a lot of people have this, I mean, maybe it's just me, but I feel like I have this inclination sometimes where I'm like, you know, is the solution going to be, well, we've got a bunch of these narrow systems and if we glue enough narrow systems together to do all of the parts of the things that our minds do, then that will effectively be a generalized AI. Is that? Yeah. It's yeah. wrong, um, right? I... So I mean, tell me why it's wrong. No, actually, I don't, I don't know that it is wrong. Um, okay. Yeah, I just, I, I think that's plausible. Um, I, I'm not sure if it's true. Um, I, I just, I just, if I really think about it, I just don't know the answer to that question. Certainly, okay. so I think certainly a trend in research is that um, we have been building systems that have been getting um, slightly and slightly more general um but it, it's not clear if this trend can continue um all the way uh to fully general ai and so, so deep learning is also part of this trend in, in some sense um, mm -hmm. because so, so a problem with classical uh sort of good old-fashioned ai is that it's um even more narrow and brittle um, but deep learning helps uh, ameliorate a little bit of that sometimes um, because it helps you interface between um, different modalities. Mm -hmm. So like in visual question answering, uh, I had, there, there are two modalities there. There was vision and there was language. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm using this neural network that I designed to do image classification to do the vision part. But I've also got some other neural network that I designed to do language. And one of the nice things about neural networks is that it's pretty easy to put these together because they're representing um, the two things in sort of compatible ways they're they're both mm -hmm. it'll represent the image as a vector of numbers and it'll represent the language as a vector of numbers and then you just have to add them mm -hmm. together or multiply them and um now you've got a representation that captures both the image and the language right so there's a universal underlying language that you can rely on there yeah yeah 
is it a lot harder is this correct that's a lot harder to do language the language side of that than the visual side yeah so i think we've certainly had a lot more success in vision um deep learning has had an impact on natural language processing um and especially in the past year um there was a little bit of an image net moment in NLP um, where uh, there are some large language models that were trained on uh, giant corpuses of text. And they sort of generate, because they were big neural networks, um, people were sort of eventually able to get them to generalize better to a wide variety of tasks. Um, okay. Compared to some more specific models um, that uh, were trained just for those particular tasks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so it was like a mini generalization breakthrough, but not like it doesn't. It's not a singularity or something like that. Yeah. No. 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 Um, it was. It. It, it was like. Uh, yeah. That, that's accurate. Um, okay. But. Sorry, I, I lost track. <laughs> what was the original question? Oh, I was just curious about, you know, sort of, are we moving towards, what would it take even at this point for us to be moving towards more generalized uh, AI? Is it just that, like, they're they're going to be sort of narrow and we're going to cobble together, you know, putting together narrow systems until they create a sufficient enough kind of facsimile, facsimile of, like, uh, a more yeah. generalized consciousness um or is there any way at some point that like i mean if you're th- like i said let me think about it this way right you were saying that there is that kind of universal language of numbers right and that if the system mm-hmm. can learn to improve itself in one domain that's based on these kinds of numbers there's this idea it seems like that it could sort of spread its capacity to improve itself in a lot of these different domains and and bootstrap itself in some way. I I mean, again, I'm Mm -hmm. I'm barely understanding a lot of this stuff, so I'm probably moving too fast and loose with a lot of the things there. Let me ask you about this, since you mentioned this as another difficulty that neural nets Mm -hmm. face and applying neural nets face, which is the idea of interpretability and transparency. That like we we don't neural nets don't explain their decisions. I think is the way that you kind of put it, right? Yeah. So that so I, I've got this uh, like if I've got a, a big image classifier, uh, it's this big deep neural network that I train to classify images. Um, and so in one way, I understand it perfectly because I was able to write the code that takes the data and trains this neural network and outputs something that's successful at at doing this task. But in another way, I don't understand it at all. (laughs) Because (laughs) what I'd like to do, or at least, and we're we're getting better at this, but um, what I'd like to do is is I'd like to say, all right, well, uh, why did you call this thing a cat? And, you know, Mm -hmm. it it comes back to me and it says, well, you know, maybe I've seen some other cats before, like 
that have pointy ears and like fur that sort of looks like this. And like, here's, here's where I found the pointy ear on this cat. And I, I don't know, here's where I found the tail on this cat. And, you know, the pointy ear was a, above the eyes. So that made a face. And, um, you know, the, mm -hmm. there's this sort of, uh, causal relationship between all of these attributes that I, as a human, uh, understand. Right. And neural networks don't, well, there, there are some attempts to get them to do this. Um, right. I was going to ask if you could be trained to do this, right? Like what, sir? They could be trained to though, right? Potentially. Ah, so they could be trained to output explanations like that. Yeah. So they could be trained to output explanations like that. Um, I, I think one thing about that is first you'd, you'd have to define um, what sort of output you're looking for. Like mm -hmm. I just sort of gave a fast and loose explanation of um, why I might think something is a cat. And sure. um, that, that invoked like a number of, a number of variety of attributes mm -hmm. and um, you know, different ways of really, but I might not use um, the same attributes and I might not talk about the same sorts of things when explaining something else. So I need to, if right. I were to train a neural network, I would need some interface. Like this is sort of what an explanation, this, this is a template for an, this is what an explanation looks like. It, but then even if I did that, there's this other problem. Okay. So um, I might have, and uh, stop me if I'm going too fast. Nope, you're fine. Okay. So there's there's this other problem. Like the, the this sort of thing is you, we have this database of explanation. The way I would do this is, is I have this database of like, this is the explanation for this cat. This is the explanation for this dog. This is the explanation for this thing and, and so on. Um, but... That doesn't that just just because I'm able to get the model to produce that explanation that I like it to produce mm -hmm. doesn't mean that that's why it produced the answer it produced. <laughs> I see what you're saying. So it not like it's lying or something, but like it, it it has two separate jobs, right? To get the right answer and to tell you an output that you'll be happy with. And they might not they may not be brought about via the same yeah. mechanisms, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Just like with a normal human being, right? Where like Exactly. Yeah. How a person does the job and how they like how an artist does a job and how they explain the process to people could be a totally different thing. Yeah, which which is why this is sort of um so part of this is like we we want deep neural networks to do human like things like this. Like these, these perceptual tasks that they're good at are the human-like things that we've struggled with before. Um, and it's, humans don't necessarily do a good job of, of explaining how they do those perceptual things. Um, right. So it's not clear that this interpretability problem is uh, solvable necessarily. Which is but, problematic, it seems like, because especially mm -hmm. in cases like medicine and crime or two that mm -hmm, come to mind mm -hmm. especially where like you really do need like an explanation for the for the conclusions or there are major exactly. problems yeah. with, with accepting the conclusions right yeah that's, so, that's exactly what i was going to say next like okay go ahead. We, we do want to um j just that we do want to use this uh we do want to deploy these systems in the world in circumstances that matter 
And uh, when we do that, uh, there are probably some of those circumstances where we want to hold them to uh, higher standards than we hold humans. So we should try to figure this. If, if for no other reason than that, we should try to figure this problem out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and I guess there might be some debate over whether it's holding them to higher standards or holding them to the same standards, but um, mm. sort of needing them to follow through. I don't know. It's it, I got into an argument with this with one of my with my professors about mm-hmm. um, autonomous vehicles and like. Are mm-hmm. we holding them to an actual higher standard or are we holding them to the same standard that we should hold everyone else to? Um, but I do think that, like, you're mm-hmm. right in the sense that when we have these, what, what we would call a black box kind of problem where mm-hmm. uh, we can't look inside the AI, it feels like um, we, we really need them to be able to explain their decisions but I mean, like, it's it's not necessarily a higher standard for a doctor, right? Like, I need a doctor to be able to explain to me, like, why I need to take a particular drug or something. Like, mm-hmm. I don't I don't need to understand the explanation perfectly, but I need to understand that there is some explanation there, and that it's not because I'm a particular color or something like that, right? The way, yeah, way we would be yeah. concerned that like some of these things would be programmed to make judgments based on the race of the individuals or trying to avoid bias, like harmful Mm -hmm. kinds of biases within the AI. Mm -hmm. That's one of the main reasons we want them to be more transparent. And so then it seems like Mm -hmm. if you're saying that they can't be more transparent in certain situations, then maybe we shouldn't be using them in those situations. Um, Yeah. Um, In, in some situations, I think, um, I think in the situations you're talking about, um, those are like so the doctor providing an explanation um mm-hmm. i think that's that's a situation where whatever ai we come up with um may have some deep learning components but um it, it won't it'll, it'll have a lot of non deep learning components too maybe maybe it needs some deep learning components for uh, the perceptual tasks of, you know, identifying tumors and images or something. Right. Um, Do you think but, that it'll, there'll always therefore be a human component in some of these processes? No, that, it doesn't necessarily mean human. It just means a, a different kind of AI. So, so okay. something that's more, um, more logical, um, more uh, based on, um, good old-fashioned ai so like uh and therefore therefore more transparent because it's specifically programmed and therefore more transparent because we know exactly how it was coded kind of situation yeah or 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 even if we don't know exactly how it's coded um it's easier to inspect because um Mm -hmm. it, it uses things like uh symbols where uh, the symbols are things that we understand, and, and if it's doing like symbol manipulation, we can we can understand uh, symbol so is manipulation. It, is a neural net not doing some form of symbol manipulation? <laughs> um, <laughs> that is that is a highly debated topic. Awesome. <laughs> I like accidentally stumbling into like questions where other fields are like, oh, fuck you. I, fuck, fuck you. Why would you ask that question? So people have argued that it's impossible for neural networks to do symbol manipulation. And people have also argued that um, neural networks can do symbol manipulation. 
just like other things can. What um, would they be doing if they're not doing symbol manipulation? Or, sorry, I, sh- I should back up a little bit. For folks who are having like into philosophy of mind and AI, the reason I got interested in this particular uh, question is because um, some folks have argued that a symbol manipulating AI, an AI that only can move around certain symbols, could never be conscious. And that they therefore, if you were going to have an AI that was conscious, it couldn't be a mere symbol manipulator. So that's why I'm curious yeah. about like what they what they might be doing that's otherwise. So Cyril's Chinese room, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, yeah, um, I guess the other thing that they would be doing is this uh, pattern recognition thing. Um, so, which is not the same uh, as manipulating symbols. Which is not this. Which is not just manipulating symbols, uh, because so it, with symbols, there's an arbitrary association between the symbols and the things that they represent. When you're doing pattern recognition, you've still got something that you're representing and something in some representation, um, it, but the. The, re- the relationship is not necessarily arbitrary between those things. So Okay. There's, so because it's a, uh, it's a reinforced relationship, it's not... It's sort of like you, you've got a... I, I guess the, the thing that comes to mind is you sort of got a template, um, and you see how similar something is to this template. Mm-hmm. And um, you're representing, and maybe you've got a bunch of, like, you've got a, you've got a chair, and the way you're going to represent the chair is um, maybe the chair has a couple parts, um, and, like, legs and uh, a back and a seat. And so just visually you've got some iconic seat and you compare it to the seat on the chair and you've got some iconic legs and you compare it to the legs on the chair and so forth. Um, and so how similar each of those parts are, uh, you, you can assign a number to that maybe. And this is going to be your representation for chair. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, different, the representation for different chairs, um, isn't, uh, arbitrarily associated with the chairs themselves like i could also like if, if i were doing a symbolic um representation i could uh have maybe an attribute for uh like this is a rounded leg and this is a boxy leg uh-huh. and so the, the i've got this one attribute for this and, and then so it's closer to it's closer to something like knowledge. It seems like right in the sense of like we wouldn't say it absolutely knows that it's looking at a leg, but it has sort of more of a categorization maybe than the entity that just has a a, a, a lookup table and a set of rules for how to apply that lookup table. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Um, I think. I don't know if I'm doing a great job of describing this difference, but uh, I, th- I think we've roughly got it. <laughs> right. So, I mean, going back to this question, though, of, like, are there not going to be... Are, like, do you feel like we'll ever hit a point where a AI doctor 
can do the full process of observation and diagnosis of a patient without any kind of human involvement? Or will it always make more sense to have a human engaging with various kinds of AI systems that are better at certain things, like better at, you know, seeing a tumor on um, someone's x-ray, but will never Mm -hmm. develop levels of flexibility needed to figure out, well, what is exactly the right treatment for this particular individual in this particular situation Mm -hmm. with this particular prognosis? Um, So I I don't know. I I can't come up with... um... The, the probability that, that I assign to that being possible mm-hmm. is so uncertain as, as to make it um, not very meaningful. So you think it's it's just as possible that it, like, robot AI um, uh, doctors will uh, roll out within our lifetimes as we'll not get anywhere close within our lifetimes? Yeah, I, I don't... Yeah, sort of. I have to say that, like, sort of emotionally, I, I sort of believe that it, it couldn't happen. Um, mm-hmm. But if I try to come up with a, a rational argument about, like, it, it will happen with high probability, I, I find that difficult. So I have to say, I don't know. What are the hitches that are still the big ones that you feel like that are still in the way of getting there from here? Um, I think it's just generally. Um, I think the first thing I'll point out is that people have, I think they've done like even surveys where they've gotten AI experts or something like that to predict, um, you know, how far away is true AI or or something like that. And um, yeah, I've seen these surveys. They're pretty funny. Yeah. And and, uh, they're wrong. (laughs) Except for the people who predict that it's far in the future because right. we haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> yeah, because I was going to say, they can't all be wrong because they range from tomorrow to never. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> someone's got to um, be right. So just just sort of empirically, um, I, I have good reason not to um, have high confidence in this. But also, um, just, there's just sort of this uh, generally research works... Um, one mountain at a time. I, I guess this is Jan LeCun's mm-hmm. analogy for this. Um, like you, you can see the top of you're hiking through uh, whatever uh, terrain and, and it's, it's mountainous and you can see the top of the next mountain, but you don't know what the mountain after that looks like. And, and there are, you don't know mm-hmm. how many mountains are after that. Could you build an AI that could tell me how many mountains there are? I mean, it would have to it would have to explore the mountains. I might be I might be uh-huh. able to build an AI that could explore the mountains faster. If I could feed it enough mountainous data. Yeah, I mean, it, it has to it has to get there though. Like it's uh huh. It's when are we going to program magic? That's what I'm trying to understand, right? When <laughs> yeah, are we gonna, I don't know if we'll get there. <laughs> we're never going to get there. Okay. Uh, right. Well, fair enough. Um, I realize we're running a little bit short on time. Uh, before we get to our, I, I promised that I would subject you to our realism, anti-realism lightning round. Is there mm-hmm. any final things you want to say about sort of in your experiences with AI, major misconceptions that you think it'd be great for people to move away from in this field? Um, I, I think maybe I'll uh, 
re-emphasize the main point that I wanted to make and may have gotten across to some degree, which is just that, uh, so, so we were talking about AI, but deep learning and neural networks in particular. And uh, I think deep learning and neural networks have been important for solving perception problems, but mm -hmm. they're only one tool in a larger toolbox of uh, ways to implement uh, various things in AI. And um, while they're good at what they do, uh, they don't solve every problem any more than a hammer solves all of your construction problems. Fair enough. I think that's that's an important point that I agree that seems sort of to get underemphasized that these are are merely tools. I think it's I think it gets confusing for people because we think that we're going to go beyond soon building a tool to building another person who can also build a tool, mm -hmm. right? That like we're building more than mere tools here, we're building consciousness or something. Mm -hmm. And and like like there is some doubt like if it, by putting all of these tools together like you do get a house eventually, but it, it's not its not clear if you will get general AI eventually, and it's not clear how close that is. Like, we've just got mm -hmm. tools for now. <laughs> Fair enough. Tools that I think we, you know, we could have spent all, the rest of this time talking about, um, yeah, or even yeah. more time <laughs> talking about, like how, like, how these weak tools can still cause a lot of harm as well, right? That, like... There's a lot of a lot of damage that can be done with non-generalized AI, and hopefully a lot of good potentially that can be done. Yeah, with... yeah, 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 yeah. Both of those things. Right. Great. Yeah. All right. Well, let's do our realism anti-realism lightning round. Okay. So, uh, the rules again, in case you're not familiar, you have to either say real or not real in response to the list of things that I am going to list off here, you are not required mm -hmm. to define what you mean by real. Though in our emails, you mentioned uh, one definition of real that I thought was particularly interesting. Do you want to explain what that definition of real was? Okay. Uh, yeah. All right. I'll pick it back up here, Brian. All right. You, yeah. You defined it as a, uh, this sounds like a list of applications and we'll ask whether or not neural nets can solve each one. If so, cool. If also not, if not also cool. So I'm thinking that so, maybe not what yeah, we're, yeah. we're doing. I was, I was trying to figure out what you meant by an anti-realism, anti realism, lightning round. Uh -huh. I guess. Yeah. Do you feel like neural nets could be trained to tell us what is real and not real? I mean, you could collect a data set of examples and train them to class to do that classification, classification. problem. Um, depending on exactly what examples you've got, they may or may not be good at it. So then they're never going to go beyond our, our ability to classify their data sets for them, are they? If we are able to eventually develop uh, something more interesting than that. Um, like, I, I mean, I, I guess we have developed something. Like, the sort of um, Go plane um, and... Mm -hmm. uh, that's fair Dota playing. right that like, have gone beyond I, I, our strategies are more than just classification fair enough okay enough enough prevaricating here it's lightning round time you ready all right all right, all right. the external world real <laughs> phenomenal consciousness real qualia not real free will mm. <laughs> both <laughs> you can't say both Pick one. Not real. There it is. Uh, selves. Real. 
Personal identity. Real. Genders. Real. Races. Real. Species. Real. Okay. Morality. Real. Rights. Real. <laughs> yeah. I, I... Yeah. All right. Final answer. <laughs> Knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think most of these are real. That's okay. real. Okay. Modalities. If if I say that there are a lot, if I said those others are real, then that one has to be real. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, gods. No. Society. Not real. Yes, that's real. Numbers. No, oh, actually, I guess gods are real since I said those other things are real. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, oh, it's fine. Society. Numbers. Numbers. Are numbers. Real. Yeah. Okay. Abstract entities. Real. Chairs. Real. Science. Real. And natural laws. Also real. Good job. You survive. <laughs> you take a very much now, of... now I'm regretting saying some of these things are real. <laughs> That's the fun of the game. You get pushed into yeah. uh, uh, saying a bunch of things and then you feel guilty about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you survive and that's the important thing. You made it through the gauntlet. I, I was going with um, abstract concepts for a number mm-hmm. of them. That's fair. The good thing is that absolutely nothing hangs on this. None of the points matter or anything like that. So. In- indeed. All right. Well, let's wrap up then, I think, with our making the void livable. I think you had something for us this week. Yeah. So I've seen uh, various therapists uh, over my life, and they have helped me work through uh, various issues in my life. And uh, I feel like they get stigmatized by society, Uh, like just going to therapy or or counseling, um, just for anybody mm-hmm. uh, gets stigmatized by society by society to some degree and um, it shouldn't be because it's a normal healthy helpful thing to do so thanks to therapists yeah i strongly co-sign this not just because my father is a clinical psychologist and not just because i have also gone to multiple therapists over the course of my life uh, i do think it is incredibly important especially now that like we're in a situation where I think people are dealing with a lot of amorphous stress and just there's a lot of struggle out there. And it would be really yeah. great if people could go and talk to someone about that consistently. But I think part of the problem for a lot of people is that, like, they don't even have reliable access to go and talk to someone consistently. Yeah. And it, it like it costs time. It costs money. It, yeah, it costs a lot of money. To... Yeah. This, this is a big issue that I'm struggling with right now where I just like. I feel like I would prefer to be talking with someone, but I'm not at a point of distress where like I can justify the the out of pocket expenses that I can. Right. Like you want to get ahead of it a bit, but then mm-hmm. it's not that it's not quite that important. Maybe. I, don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, with any medical situation where you're forced to kind of triage your own well-being to try to figure out what, uh, you know, what your priority, what your priorities are with your limited resources. Yeah, yeah. I need to get an AI to tell me how to do this better. <laughs> Maybe if we built AI therapists, everyone could have easy access to AI therapists. <laughs> so. I know there's, um, a, there's a good history about this subject. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was going to say, uh, what is it? Eliza. Eliza yeah, Eliza uh, Bot. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, for folks who are not familiar, ElizaBot was a AI uh, chatbot that was created based on, modeled off of a certain kind of therapist, the ones that, you know, ask questions, reframe everything as questions for you. And it was uh, one of the early pretty effective examples of a chatbot. Yeah. Many people were convinced by it for a significant period of time was the thing that sort of made it outstanding in, in the history, I think. Yeah, and not just convinced, like described having deep, meaningful interactions, some even more yeah. knowing that it was a robot. So, yeah, I think that's, you know, I think we, we need to get we need to get there, right? We need to get if not AI overlords, at least AI therapists would be a good start. So. Yeah, that would be cool. That would be great. And and hopefully maybe a better healthcare system in the meantime. That would also be That would be good stupendous. too. Yeah, that might be more realistic. Yeah. All <laughs> so right. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I don't know. Now that I think about that, I yeah. Oh, that's a tough that's a dark bet. Um yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for coming on and talking to us about all of these very tricky AI kinds of questions. Uh, is there anywhere, anything you want to plug, um, thing people can find you at, stuff you got coming um, up? Nope, I'm just graduating. Uh, I'll have my PhD in a year. I'm not quite sure what I'm doing after that. All right, well, um, congratulations but, on, well, hope, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> um, check back in with you. Yeah, thank, thanks for, hopefully I didn't screw up too much, and uh, thanks for having me on. No, this was great. Thank you so much. Thank you to our listeners and patrons for making all of this possible. Thank you to our new patrons, Grand Preupism, Hunter Ash, John Bartlett, and General Contact Unit Problem Child. Uh, thank you to our $20 tier patrons, Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence Makes My Pussy Throb, The Person Who Controls the Spice Controls the Void, Volunteer with Camp Quest this summer, campquest.org. Jonathan Steele is a great dad fund. Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And thank you especially to our top tier patron, as always, the wonderful Dave Maslich. Thank you so, so much. You all make this entirely possible. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on your podcast app. Follow us at Twitter at ETVPod and support us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. And remember, you are the void and the void is you. Mm-hmm.